Acts chapter number 16. I want to begin reading in verse number 16, and we have read this passage. In fact, last week we read this passage. But I want to read just a few verses to give us some context for tonight's message. In verse number 16, uh, we're following Paul and Silas on Paul's missionary journeys here, and we're at Philippi. And the Bible says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Now I want you to pay extra attention to the next few verses. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loose. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, the next verse is going to upset the Roman Catholics in the world. The next verse is going to upset the Charismatics in the world and the Church of Christ. This next verse is going to upset the Jehovah's Witnesses in the world and the Mormons. This next verse is going to upset the Muslims in the world and the Buddhists and the Hindus. In fact, you'll find that this next verse is going to upset absolutely everyone except those that have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ because this gives what it needs, uh, what a person needs to do to be saved. It says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. You say, preacher, is that saying his house would be saved because he believed? No, it's saying if his house believed, they'd be saved too. Amen? Look what it says. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I need your help this evening. I need your presence. I need your power, Lord. My heart's desire is that the Holy Ghost would have free reign and liberty in the service tonight. Lord, make us aware of anything that we might be doing that would quench the Holy Ghost. 
Help us, Lord, to not do anything that would impede or intrude upon the work that you have to do in hearts tonight. I'd ask, Lord, that if there's one amongst us that's lost, that you'd show them their need of salvation. Lord, one that's backslidden, that you'd draw them close to yourself. One that's haughty, that they'd be abased. One discouraged, they'd be uplifted. But God, you know the need, and we just ask that you'd meet it. Lord, help us to lift up the high and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ, tonight. Help us to magnify Him. Help, uh, Lord, us to decrease that He might increase. And help us do all things unto His glory and to His honor. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Boy, what a familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, most of us have been here many, many, many times as we've studied the Word of God. This is one of the most iconic portions of all of the Word of God. This is the account of the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But tonight I don't want us just simply to focus on that jailer. In fact, we're not even going to focus on him in the majority of our time. But we've studied for the past four weeks on prayer meetings in the Bible and had a specific focus not just on prayer, but on corporate prayer. Now you say, what's corporate prayer? Corporate prayer is when people meet together to pray about a need. I believe there's a place for private prayer. Anyone that reads the Word of God uh, could not do so without being keenly aware that our prayer closet is of vital importance. But I believe in this day that we live in, there has been an underemphasis on the prayer meet. I believe we live in a day where people just don't have time to meet together and pray. Don't you believe that's true? Isn't it funny? You know, we've let the world rob us of, of the greater good that God's wished for us. We've let, I mean, listen, now this is the honest truth. Most of you know this is true. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we've let our jobs rob us of the Wednesday night prayer meeting. We've let, we've let our activities and our responsibilities during the day rob us of the Wednesday night prayer meeting. We've allowed uh, the uh, energy that we have to exert towards other things and the maintaining of what God has given us. And we ought to maintain what God has given us. But we've allowed that to rob us of the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And it's no wonder that we have an anemic church today in this world that we live in. Listen, you can do a lot of things in glory in your flesh, but you can't pray and get a hold of the horns of the altar and do it in the flesh. A preacher can preach in the flesh. A soul winner can witness in the flesh. A Sunday school teacher can teach in the flesh. But if you're really going to get a hold of God in prayer, you can't be in the flesh to do it. And we've just not really got much time for it. That's the honest truth today. I don't think anybody would fault me for saying that, do you? I think we could look around and see that that's the case today. I mean, I, I think we live in a day where most churches have done away with the Wednesday night prayer meeting. They're starting to do away with the Sunday night services. It ain't going to be long before they're meeting once a month, amen, just to collect tithe and that's it. And people are looking for a reason to do away with the prayer meeting service. I believe the devil's behind that, don't you? I believe the devil's very interested in stopping the church from praying. And you say, well, he's not attacking my prayer closet. It's probably because he can't find you there, amen? The truth of the matter is this, the reason the devil attacks prayer is because of how important it is. We find that the prayer meeting has been attacked because of the importance it holds within the local church. And I believe as we study this passage and many others over the past four weeks, we've seen the value and importance, not just of praying on our own, but of coming together as believers to pray over a matter. Now you say, preacher, you're padding for this Friday night prayer meeting. You better believe it, amen. But that's not the only reason we're talking about it. I believe there's a need for it in our churches. Not just a one-time event, neighbor. 
but an attitude of prayer and an attitude of coming together in the activity of prayer. We read this passage and it's quite familiar to us. Uh, Paul and Silas cast out the demon out of this uh, uh, little girl, this soothsayer that's been following him around and uh, crying out, these be the servants of the Most High God would show unto us the way of salvation. You say, what's wrong with that? Her focus was not on the God that saves, but on the servants of the God. And you can better believe that any time the focus is on man and not on God, God's displeased with it. And so uh, Paul turns around and rebukes that spirit, commands that spirit to come out of her. And that spirit does. Well, that upset the people that were making money off of her. By the way, you know that's the only interest this world has in a lost soul, is how it can exploit it and use it for its own gain and advantage. So that upset those that made money off of her. So they took Paul and Silas and brought them to the magistrates and said, these men uh, being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. What to God that was the testimony of every member of Walridge Baptist Church. That we're so close to God that it shakes things. That we're so close to God that it makes a difference. That we're so close to God as a church that people say, watch out for that Walridge Baptist Church. They're fanatics. Wouldn't that be a good thing, don't you think? People say, you're nuts. I'm screwed onto the right bolt, amen. <laughs> that don't bother me. I believe we ought to be fanatic. Let me tell you the kind of people that call Bible-believing Christians fanatics, those that are casual Christians, they call them fanatics. That's who calls them fanatics. But we find in this passage that they take Paul and Silas, the Bible says they laid many stripes upon them, and they put them in the inner chamber of the prison and locked their feet in the stocks and locked them in there and set the watch over them and left them there. Now, we could stop the story there and, and learn a lot from that passage. But I want us to focus on just three thoughts tonight. Three things that I observe in this narrative that I believe will help us in our prayer lives. And I believe they ought to be a part of our prayer lives, both personally and corporately. I want you to notice first off, look at verse number 25. Very, very familiar. It says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Now you say, well, preacher, we just read that. I don't see anything in there except that they were in a bad state and they prayed. Oh, but that's what you saw. <laughs> they were in a bad situation. And I want you to notice first off the instinct of prayer. We live in a day when prayer has become a last resort. Why is that? Prayer ought to be our first resort. Prayer ought to be our first activity. And we find that when Paul and Silas got in, there's no record of them sending to the other disciples to try to get their bail money. There's no record of them trying to gain an audience and appeal with the magistrates to plead their case. There's no record of them trying to get together a Baba believers to come and to break them out of prison. There's no record of that. In fact, we find that the first thing they did was the only thing that they did. They had no backup plan. All they did was they prayed. It was their immediate recourse. Let me tell you something. When we have difficult times in life, it ought to be that the first thing we do is pray, not the last thing. We got it backwards, neighbor. We got the cart before the horse. Now, I'm, I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you. I believe that God expects us, uh, whenever we prayed for something. I, let me give you an illustration. You, you've heard about, I know, Ralph, you've heard about this. I know you've heard, so you just bear with me. But you've heard about the old fellow that was drowning. And he, and he prayed and he asked God and he said, Lord, you need to save me. You need to save me. And pretty soon here came by just a little bitty John boat, just, just humming along down through there. And that fellow in the drawn boat yelled out and said, Hey, buddy, do you need some help? Climb aboard. And the fellow said, No, that's all right. I've prayed for God's help. So he continues to pray and continues to pray. 
And here in a few minutes, a bigger boat swings by. Some people throw a lifeline out to him and say, Hey, buddy, you look like you're drowning. You need to get in. Hurry. He said, No, I've prayed and I've asked God to deliver me. Just go on. So they go on. Pretty soon, a search helicopter shows up, drops down a ladder. He says, All right, buddy, it's time. We came for you. Get on up in here. He says, No, thank you, sir. I've prayed and I'm looking for God to deliver me. That fella drowned. Amen. <laughs> And he gets to heaven and he looks at God and he says, Lord, I don't understand it. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I asked you to deliver me. And God said, well, I sent one boat, I sent two boats and I sent a helicopter, dummy. You should have climbed on. Yeah, I think we need when God has made a way, I think we need to do what our responsibility is. But we've got the cart before the horse. Instead of going to God first, we go to God last. Instead of going to God first, we try everything else. Then we go to God as a last resort. You know why we do that? Let me just be, I, I mean, I'm going to be as straight as I can right here. We do it because we don't really believe in prayer. We do it because we don't really believe prayer is going to work. Because if we really believe prayer is going to work, we'd pray the first time. But we don't do that. We don't do that. You know why? Because we think, well, yeah, prayer can work, but we're really thinking prayer won't work. We find the first thing they did was they prayed. They sought God's face. We find that it was a, an immediate, immediate recourse. But we find that it was an encouraging resource. I like what it says right afterwards. It says, and they prayed, oh boy, I like this, and sang praises unto God. It's interesting that they didn't sing praises and then pray. They prayed and then they sang praises. You say, why do you reckon they did that? I reckon they did it because until they prayed, they didn't have the strength to sing praises. You know, prayer is an encouraging thing. Prayer is a supernatural activity. You're aware of that, right? It's a spiritual activity, a supernatural activity. And there's things we gain from prayer. Listen to me carefully. There's things we gain from prayer that are spiritual and supernatural. Things that we gain that are not, rel not relative to our circumstances and situations. I'd propose this to you. You say, preacher, wh what kind of situation were they in before they prayed? Well, it's locked in prison. That's fast. It's probably going to go to prison for a long time or be beheaded. You say, preacher, what kind of circumstance were they in after they prayed? Well, they're locked in prison, and that's probably going to be in there for a long time. They might even going to be beheaded. Nothing changed in their circumstances immediately. Nothing changed. But they found the strength to begin to sing praises unto Almighty God. How did they do that? They found the strength in the prayer. Notice that it says they prayed. They sang praises. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it was like. I kind of think Paul might have looked over at Silas and said, Silas, what are you going to do? And he looked over and said, I don't know. What do you want to do? He said, well, I guess we ought to pray. That's the first thing we ought to do. And they began to pray. I don't know what it was like. You know, we can have some of that sanctified imagination and just imagine and kind of speculate a little bit. But but I kind of think, you know, they were sitting there praying and praying and, and praying and probably one of them just heard the other one start in. I don't know what they sang. It could have been anything, you know. It probably, very probably, it was a psalm that they were singing. But I do not know that. It could have been that Silas began to sing out, My, my help cometh. From the hills, I look under the hills from whence my help cometh. 
It, it could have been that Paul started to sing out that when my heart was overwhelmed within me, then I cried unto the Lord. I do not know what they began to sing, but we find that there was a supernatural touch of God that took place because they committed themselves unto prayer. You say, preacher, that's not scriptural. That's not scriptural. The Bible says, uh, praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, the Bible says, to let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. Prayer has a supernatural effect on us. We begin to pray, and you know what we're aware of? (laughs) Oh, I like this. We're aware that the one that can do something about it knows about it. He already knows about it. He already knows about it. But we've convinced ourselves that he knows about it. And I kind of think Paul and Silas sat there and thought to themselves, there's an answer on the way because God wouldn't allow his servants to stay in this circumstance. We find that their instinct was towards prayer. They didn't have a business meeting and vote on whether to pray. They didn't have a committee to start to investigate the need for prayer. Uh, they didn't begin to talk with one another and debate the uh, validity of prayer. But the first thing that Paul and Silas did instinctually was they began to pray. We see the instinct of prayer, but notice the impact that prayer makes. We've read it very many times, but I want you to notice what it says there in verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. Uh, let, me, let me just tell you what I feel about this, and I believe it's scriptural. I believe that if they hadn't prayed, the place wouldn't have been shaken. I believe prayer makes that big of a difference. That's why prayer is so important. You've heard me say, and I contend that this is still truth, that prayer does more to change us than it ever does to change God. But I would propose to you that God has a desire to work in His children's lives, and the thing that keeps Him from being able to do it is our unchangeableness. So whenever, you know, the Bible says, you know, people say you can't put no limits on God. Sure you can. That's what the Bible says the nation of Israel did. It said they limited the Holy One of Israel. Let me tell you something, neighbor. God wants to do some big things in your life and mine. God wants to do some big things Wall Ridge Baptist Church. God wants to do big things in your home, in your family. But God's not able to do it until we get our lives in line with Him. You know why? Because He would be blessing iniquity in our lives. And our holiness is more important than our happiness. So God requires us to be broken before He'll bless us. He requires our will to be shattered before His will can be foreseen in our lives. God has a desire to work in our lives, but He cannot do it until we're changed. And so as we pray, we perceive that we're changing God. But God is the same. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not God that we're changing, neighbor. It's us that we're changing. But in changing us, we're changing our relationship to God. And God is able to work in our lives in a greater way. We find that two things happen. We see, first off, the shaking of the prison. We find God's presence. When they began to pray, God showed up. You say, that's oversimplified. Yeah, but it sure is good, isn't it, neighbor? When they began to pray, God showed up in a big way. I'll tell you what our church needs and what all churches need today. We need more of the presence of God in our midst. You say, oh, but where two or three are gathered together. Uh, He said, there will I be. Yeah, that's what he said, but he didn't say he'd be on display, did he? Come on now. He didn't say he'd be on display. He said, I'll be there. 
but he didn't say he'd be manifest. He said, I'll be there, but it doesn't mean he's going to have liberty. I, you say, preacher, well, I, you know, I just think it don't take very many. I don't think it takes very many either, but I think they need to be prayed up and paid up and separated unto God and serving Him before God can show up and do something big. I think the lives of His people affect the means through which He can work in a service. I think that's vital. And I think we've got to get to the place. Most of us, neighbor, we don't even pray. Most of us don't even pray until we get to church and something warrants our praying. It ought to be when our feet hit the ground, Sunday morning and every other day of the week too, it ought to be that we begin to converse with an almighty God. If we want God's presence, that's what it's going to take. That's as plain and as simple as I know how to put it. And it's not going to be just this preacher, although it has to be him too. But it's going to take all of us. That's what this prayer meeting thing is about. It's about us coming together and coveting and earnestly pleading for the presence of God in our midst. That's what revival is. Revival. You know, nobody ever died in Jesus' presence. <laughs> Broke up every funeral he ever went to. And there's a lot of church house funerals that Christ needs to show up to and the people need Him to show up to so He can resurrect that dead mess. That's what revival is, is the presence of God getting in the midst of a dead situation. That's what we need in a mighty way. We need God to show up and do something great. And I believe He responds to, to the pleas of His people. I don't know of a single parent, and Corey, I'm going to be one soon. I don't know of a single parent that when, when their little child cries out and says, I need you, that they don't come running. Where do you think we got that from? Where do you think we got that from? We're made in His image. That's instinctual. It's instinctual to God to respond to the pleas of His children. It's instinctual to Him that He would manifest Himself in a mighty way. You say, preacher, you're talking about some kind of visible manifestation. No, I'm not talking about that. I know we've got all kinds of people all over the world. They've seen Elvis and Jesus both sitting together at the Waffle House, eating them scattered, smothered, and, and covered, amen, chunked. I, I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God having such liberty in a service that you see Him come in and just shake people's very lives and do a mighty work. By the way, it was shaken from the foundation up. That's what we need. We don't need anything super uh, superficial. We need something supernatural. We don't need something manufactured. We need something manifested. We don't need something drummed up. We need something dug in. That's what we need. And it comes through prayer. It comes through the prayer closet. We see God's presence. We see the shaking of the prison. But we see the setting free of the prisoners. Everyone's bands were loose. Tell me God ain't in that. You ever seen God do something so remarkable that there's no question in it? You knew God was in that. Hey, you ever had a financial need? God made it to the penny? God's in that, neighbor. You can tell me, you, you can say whatever you want. You can convince me this way, that way, whatever you want to do. You will never convince me that God is not aware of the needs of His people. Never. I've seen it too much. On and on we could go about things that God has done in our lives. Don't tell me it wasn't God that dropped them shackles off their wrists. I want you to notice that God responded to their circumstance, but He responded to their situation. He responded not only to what was going on, but what it needed to be done. We see God's power and presence, but we see His provision taking place. What do you think He's praying for? Well, 
if they prayed like us, we'd be we'd be hung up there in the stocks and we'd be praying, saying, you know, we'd be falling half asleep and saying, Lord, bless this food. Amen. Right before we're about to go to bed. <laughs> we'd be hanging up there and we'd be saying, Lord, I need a new car. Lord, I you know, I just what I really need more than anything, I need a new house. Lord, what I really need, and sometimes I want I wonder if God wants to just sit there and say, Hush, don't you see what you need? Don't you see what you need? And I kind of think they weren't praying for all them things. I, I, I believe. Now call me simplistic now. But I believe there was probably only about one thing they was praying for. I think they were saying, praying, and I think they were saying, Lord, we're in this prison and we'd like to be out. And God, if it's your will, then we'd ask that you'd deliver us from this situation. You know what happens when we pray specifically? God answers specifically. Most of us don't have our prayers answered because we pray generally. Lord, bless me. What does that mean? Bless you with what? What does that mean? But Bless you with what? A head cold? What does that mean? That don't make no sense. That's silly. You don't do that anywhere else. You don't go to, you don't go to McDonald's and say, ah, just give me something. Amen. <laughs> you better not. You don't know what you're going to get at McDonald's. Get one of them old fish tacos or something. I don't know. You don't go to a restaurant and you don't say, well, just give me whatever. No, you go and you sit down in the restaurant and you say, this is what I want. And most of you, if you're like some people I know, you say, I want it this way. I want no onions. I want mustard on the side. I want it to be medium rare. If it's medium, I'm sending it back. And boy, we get awful picky when we sit at the restaurant. But then we pray to the Almighty God of heaven and we say, Lord, bless me. Lord, do something in my life, something. God could hit you over the head with a ton of bricks. That'd be something, but that's not what you're asking for. You ought to pray specifically. I believe they got what they got because they prayed for it. I believe they prayed and say, Lord, release us from this bondage. Drop these chains off of us. And God said, I'll show up and I'll show out and I'll do it because you prayed and you asked me to. We see the impact of prayer, but I want you to see the influence of prayer very quickly. I'm interested in verse number 25. The Bible says, and they prayed and sang praises unto God at midnight. And the Bible says, and the other prisoners heard them. The other prisoners heard them. There was not only a testimony of God's peace there. A testimony of God's peace. Boy, it ought to be that if people don't identify us as anything else... If people don't identify, and I'm not, let me try to say this carefully, I'm not against labels. Amen? I know we live in a day where people say, I don't like labels. Well, you sure like for the rat poison to have a label. I don't think labels are wrong. I, I, I mean, neighbor, I'm as proud as I can be to be an independent, fundamental, old-fashioned, King James-only, pre-millennial, fire-breathing, sweat-pouring, biscuit-eating, gravy-slopping Baptist. There's nothing wrong with that. Amen. And I think we ought to have labels. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, that's not denominationalism either. That's having a label, being identified. There's nothing wrong with that. But let me say that if people are going to identify you by one label, other than blood-washed, born-again Christian, other than believer, it ought to be, that woman's a praying woman. That man's a praying man. That man talks to God, and God hears him. That woman talks to God, and God hears her. 
I kind of believe them prisoners heard something whenever they heard Paul and Silas pray and sing praises. You say, why do you believe that? Because when their chains fell off, they stayed put. They learned that what they needed wasn't outside them doors, it was inside. And let me tell you the problem. Let me tell you why we're losing a young generation to the world. Because they think what they need is outside them doors instead of inside. We've shown them dead religion for so long that they're looking for something exciting. Listen, neighbor, I've worked with young people. What they're looking for is real Holy Ghost-filled Christianity. That's what they want. And because we've showed them something dead, they want to take it in the yard and bury it and move on like anybody would. And then we sit there and lament and moan and mourn and say, Well, I just don't understand. I just don't understand why we can't reach kids today. I just don't understand why. I can. I can. They're sick of people playing church. That's why. They're sick of not seeing something real in our lives. It's no wonder that we lose our kids if we don't show them that we know God and speak to Him and He hears us and He answers and we serve a living God. If they don't believe He's living, now listen carefully. If they don't believe He's living, they're going to believe He's dead. It's the only two choices we've got. If we don't show our kids that we serve a living God, they're going to believe that He's dead. We better get that through our heads. There's a testimony to others around us. And then prisoners didn't flee because Paul and Silas had showed them that what they need was found within that prison, not without it. That they had the answer. But I want you to notice not only the testimony of God's peace, but the testimony of His power. We find that that jailer, what did he do? He took out his sword, and he's getting ready to drive that thing into his belly. And you say, why is he getting ready to do that? Because uh, if he hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it to him, if all them prisoners had escaped. His life for theirs, that was the policy back then. And uh, so he knew he was as good as dead. You know when a man gets saved, when they recognize that they're as good as dead? Amen? He knew he was as good as dead. But whenever, just before, just before that moment, he heard a voice. He heard a voice cry out of the darkness. Would to God. I think more sinners would come to know the Savior if they'd start hearing voices crying out to Him, don't you? Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. I don't know what that prisoner or that, uh, that jailer thought. I don't know what he thought. He might have thought, well, that's a nasty trick to play. He might have thought, well, he don't know what he's talking about. But evidently, he had seen enough of the presence of God that he stopped and investigated it. You know when we're going to see more people saved? When they see enough of the power of God in our lives that they stop and investigate it. You know why Moses turned aside in the wilderness? Because he saw a burning bush. When people see the power of God in our lives, it creates a thirst. That's what salt does, isn't it? We're to be the salt of the earth. Anything with salt on it tends to make you thirsty. It ought to be that people see our lives. They see enough of something different. They see enough of the power of God that they say, there's something to that. You say, God, don't shake my foundations like that. Sure He does. Has He ever brought you up out of a sick bed? He shook your foundations. Hey, has He saved you? He had to shake your foundations to do that. He ever helped you through a car wreck that you shouldn't live through? God shook your foundations. The problem is, we're not testifying to the truth and the fact of it like we are to. Man, you you look in the disciples' lives, and I'm, I'm done, I'm about to close, 
But you look in the life of the disciples and you find out that after they met Jesus, that's all they talked about. Isn't that right? Uh, read the Word of God. Isn't that right? They met Jesus and that's all they talked about. They didn't have no other interests. I mean, you know, Paul might have talked about tent making with a few good old boys, but he just did it so he could talk to them about Jesus. It became an all-consuming passion in their lives. The display of the power of God in their lives caused them to have a passion, but it caused others to see the power of God in their life. You see, I just believe when we really become praying people that we're going to see God do great things. And I think it's a lot easier to win people to Christ when people can see that God's present in your life. I'm not, I'm not for exclusive lifestyle evangelism. You hear me? I'm not for exclusive lifestyle evangelism. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? You, you meet some people out in, in places that say, well, you know, I don't get pushy with my religion. I, I just, I don't, I don't talk to people about it. I just don't think that's wise. You know, my, people at my work really get upset when I do that. And I just, you know, some, I just don't make big fuss over my religion. Well, B.R. Lake, and you say, uh, if I didn't have any more than you do, I wouldn't make fuss over it either. I'd just keep myself quiet, amen? They say, well, I just don't want it. I'll just, I'll just live it, and they'll see it. That's a crock and a lie straight out of the pit of hell. You say, why do you believe that? Because when our Savior met the woman at the well, He spoke to her. If the Immaculate Son of God could not exclusively would not win people with lifestyle evangelism, what does a poor, wretched, lost, sin-sick person like you and me that have been washed by the blood of Christ and made whole, what chance do we have people looking at us and saying, well, they're just so good, I'm going to fall down on my knees and get saved. That's not what I'm talking about. I believe we need to be uh, politely confrontational, if I could put it that way, in winning people to Christ. Confrontational, by the way, does not mean cantankerous. What confrontational means is that you actually talk to a person about their soul. Now, it's good that you invite them to church. I, I recommend that to you. That's good. But they don't need our church. They need our Savior. That's what they need. That's what confrontational soul winning means. It means talking to them about the Savior. It doesn't mean being cantankerous. So I'm not advocating lifestyle evangelism. But what I'm merely saying is this. It's a lot easier to reach people when they see something in your life that is worth having. When people see, you know, we ought to talk about answered prayers in our life. I was very, very proud, and I'm going to embarrass him this morning. Nick, Nick, you know, passed his tests that he was taking. They're tough tests. They're tough. And uh, you got to pay a lot of money to take them, and he needed to do that to advance in his line of work. And he said this morning, uh, and this was after, after it was in Sunday school, after prayer time, after we had got done talking, he said, you know, I just want to give God the praise for that. And I could tell as he said it that it was something he did deliberately because he didn't want the opportunity to go by without him giving praise for God helping him pass those tests. You say, well, it's just a little old test. Well, you didn't have to take it, amen. <laughs> the point is we need to be deliberate in praising God. Deliberate in it. Not, not incidental in praising God. Not, and you say, what's incidental? That's when somebody says, hey, you had a test done. What happened with that? Oh, it, it went well. It went well. I guess God was with me. That's incidental. Deliberate is to say, hey, let me tell you about what God did in my life. I believe that's needed. I believe it's necessary for our daily walks. I believe we need to get to a place where prayer is at the centerpiece of our lives. I believe we won't see the power of God until we do.
I believe we can play church all we want, but, but people that don't pray are just playing. Until we get serious about prayer. You say, oh, preacher, do you mean about this Friday? I mean about every day. Every day. Until we get to that place. We're not going to see the power of God. It's as simple as that. We've got to get serious about it and quit playing games with God. Quit playing games with our walks with the Lord. Because i tell you what's going to happen. We're going to lose another generation if we don't. We're going to lose another generation.